the most important thing about this white paper is that it means that at last we have a way forward, a proposed way forward, so we can end the, the sort of stasis that we've experienced for at least three years now. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Welcome to a special edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. A few days after the government announced that it was taking direct control over the rail network, who better to talk to than one of the few people with experience of running trains directly for the government? Michael Holden was the government's go-to guy for running railways, taking both southeastern and east coast back into the public sector when their private sector franchises collapsed. He's seen the best and worst of both public and private sectors, so he's a great person to comment on the potential for success of the Williams Shapps plan for rail. Michael Holden, welcome to this special edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. So, you've read it. What did you think? I was impressed with the William Schatz report. It's difficult to tell which bits were written by who, uh, but you can see the bits that were strongly influenced by the Treasury, of course. Uh, But as um, a piece of uh, policy coming out of central government, I would say it's one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, I found, when I first read it on Friday, was it it, was Friday, wasn't it? Um, It was Thursday, okay. Thursday, yeah, that's it. When I first read it, that's it. When I first read it on Thursday, I felt really quite optimistic and energized. This is great. And they'd, they'd really nailed the issues with the current structure and they'd really describe what customers want to see in the future. And when I woke up on Friday, I felt a bit less optimistic and sort of a, a slight tone of pessimism has started to infuse some of my thinking. But well, Now, why is that? I think the reason is because I think the analysis of the problems and how we got to where we are was pretty well laid out and it was concise and really quite elegant and extraordinarily frank, you know, coming from central government, which is the authors of, of an awful lot of the current misfortune. So all that part of the, the white paper was excellent. Uh, and it's come up with some really good ideas as to how to take things forward. But the problem is that you were probably struggling with on Friday morning is that there was no detail to support any of it. So there was a lot of lofty aspirations about how things could be uh, in the future, but very little uh, other than faith uh, as to how you were going to get there to achieve them. Because the detail, as we know, uh, that the devil very, very much is is in the detail, and and I don't think as much thought has gone into uh, this white paper as probably went into the 1992 white paper that led to the 93 Railways Act. So I don't, and whilst this is not as radical as that, it is still proposing a seismic change. It's you know it is the biggest change in the UK heavy rail industry that we've seen for 30 years. And, and it's a bit light on how we're going to get there, in, in my view. And I, I suspect that's, that's what was nagging away at you on Friday morning. I think that's right. You read it and the analysis of the past is absolutely spot on. And it is. It, it, you let, give them credit just for one thing, which is it is very, very clear and very well written. And it feels like it's been written by someone intelligent who understands the issues and understands the industry and the descriptions of what customers want is well articulated. You, it, as a customer service strategy, it feels really good. And you think, yeah, do all those things and we'll have 
know, customers will get a better service and the railway will be better. And that's great. And in, in one sense, don't knock that because, my God, it could have come out with a whole load of rubbish that no one wanted and wouldn't have worked and wasn't the right things to do. So you, the fact that it's intelligent, the fact that it's articulate, the fact that it gets the past right, diagnoses the present problems correctly and prescribes the right solutions for the future, well, at least for the next stage of the future, all of which deserves absolute credit. Uh, but it, I, I, I started to think, what happens in 2030? You know, do, well, when all this stuff's done, and it is very prescriptive about some of the short term stuff. I love the fact that they you know, it specifies there will be fewer announcements, um, yeah, and it, 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 it's not just you know, yeah, there will be was it there'll be fewer annoying and repetitious recorded announcements in a in a in a, in a government white paper, which is great. Um, but once that's been done, and we've got pay as you go ticketing, and we've got all the other things that that are specified as outcomes. Does this structure generate the next wave of new ideas and innovation? And I wasn't totally clear that it made clear to me where that was going to come from. Well, surely the, the reason for that is there is no vision as to what rail should be doing in 30 years time. I mean, that's not being articulated anyway. And in fact, for that matter, neither is there any vision of what transport should be doing as a whole uh, for the country in 30 years time. So you, you can't work out what the transport objectives are as a whole. And therefore, it's hard to work out what role rail ought to be trying to play uh, in that space in 30 years time. And, and so it's, it's a lot of sort of vague aspiration and waffle but without the, the the vision and strategy it's difficult to put it into context and as you say it's very clear on the immediate steps to get out of the mire a lot of which could have been taken at any time over the last 15 years quite happily but haven't been uh, but much less clear on um, where they want to go with it in the longer term i mean, give take open access as a, as a good example it's really not at all clear what they think of it um, is it a good or a bad thing? Uh, there's, there's talk of uh, maybe encouraging it in the future, but that's not exactly a sort of vision statement, is it? Uh, and, and, and I think you can, you can look through the proposals here and see that actually it's going to be quite a, a cold climate for open access, actually, um, because GBR, which is going to be uh, designing and letting these concessions to operate long distance services, and then managing the results has to produce the timetables, has to allocate space. Yes, there's an independent appeals mechanism through the RR, not really worked up in any detail as to what that might look like, because we've already got one of those at the moment. Um, but uh, it's hard to see GBR welcoming uh, a new open access operator that might want to snaffle up paths on bits of the network which are already pretty congested and effectively steal a proportion of its revenue in the process. So it's a bit like the sort of the, the DFT and network rail all wrapped into one opposing open access because it's awkward. Uh, it's yeah. not exactly encouraging the entrepreneurialism that, uh, that open access you know could bring if it was in, if it was given the right framework. Yeah, I think the one the one thing I would challenge in your statement just then is that the paper's not clear what it thinks of open access. I think the paper is very clear what it thinks of open access, uh, which is that um, it says as little as possible about it and rather hopes it'll go away. Um, yeah, I, I mean, guess it, that's the subplot. Yeah, I think you're right. It, but it doesn't say that overtly, does it? No, it doesn't say that. You know, it ought, they ought to know where they are. And they're a bit clearer on freight, aren't they? They think freight's a good thing. Uh, yeah. And they've said that. They haven't brought themselves to say that for open access, and and I think you, I, I maybe I was being unduly um, 
easy going with them on it and, and i think you're right they, they don't see much of a future for it but what what is the future for for long distance intercity style services because i don't think concessions is the right way forward other than in the short term to to get us out of the current mire so i think that that they're vague on what the future for that is and that can only be because it's not been thought through yet yeah i agree that you know, the model that the paper repeatedly talks about is the success of the overground and that were yeah i mean i, I live in walthamstow where we have two overground lines and they're hugely popular and they've grown massively and they work and they're clean and they're on time and all the things that everyone says and it, it has been a success and for many local and regional lines you can see that model working very successfully in this new uh, environment as well but like you yeah, i mean i have very you know, specific experience because I, at children railways we were on one of the few railways where there was genuine competition and i could see the benefit the competition brought to longer distance routes in terms of the way we at children railways had to think because we were constantly you know we were paranoid about losing customers to virgin constantly paranoid and that does make a difference it really does make a difference if you if you're if, if the number one goal you've got is to stop customers making a choice to use another train company uh, you behave differently I, you just do and I, I i would have loved to have seen a bit of a role for that in um in in the longer distance market and i think it's a shame that the paper very much regarded the railway as needing one set of solutions because the railway yeah as a delivery mechanism is one thing but as a set of markets it's very different and you could have a very different solution for the commuter railways that feed the major cities uh, as for rural lines that basically form part of a, a micro economy in you know devon or cornwall or or lincolnshire and those long distance lines where you already have competition between trains cars planes coaches and actually different train companies competing with each other might not have been such a bad idea as well yeah i do completely agree with you I, I think the thing that was most obviously missing in the last year and a quarter is is the commercial imperative in in rail and uh you know that was there before to a greater or lesser extent uh, but since the pandemic struck the, the rail industry has been caught like a rabbit in the headlights really it's been unable to respond to to the market effectively in in the way that um airlines and coach operators and everybody else have done uh, so we're now left with this very high cost industry uh that's that's really spent a lot of money moving fresh air around the country and, and is now unsure of its future role I mean, having said all that, one thing that in one, I, I would have liked to have seen a greater role for longer distance competition, and I, and I do mean only on longer distance routes. But one thing I, the paper did do, at least, was it sort of, it settled the debate. Um, because I've, I've often been asked, you know, what's my opinion on privatisation of the railways? Was it a good idea? And my view has always been that you know, privatisation is fine and nationalisation is fine. They can both work, just choose one and do it. And for the last, you know, since the sort of the first vision of privatization failed we've been in this buggers model where it's neither one thing nor the other and at least now it feels like the governments can make a decision and it's nationalization and i know they've not said nationalization they're determined to not use the n-word but it is if you look at where the decisions are going to be made how the budget's going to be set yeah we are we are moving into a world of an entirely nationalized railway um, well that's in the entirely way... agree with you because i think it's uh, it's effectively already in that position so all this is doing yes, is fair codi codifying that so uh, i think the debate we've seen in the last two or three days in the mainstream media is pretty um pretty peripheral because the, the people latch on to this whole private versus public thing and, and make a big issue out of it but the reality is that the railways have been 
publicly specified and predominantly publicly run for the last 15 months uh, and publicly specified for very much longer than that. And I think at least now it's sort of it's, it's honest. One one of my worries going into this actually, which didn't happen, was that we were going to end up in a situation which effectively codified where we are now, which is that the government makes all the decisions but outsources the blame. And I, and, and 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 I didn't like that because it meant that the government didn't have to take responsibility for its own decisions. And that that ha we have at least not got that situation. You know, you know, it, bringing back the British Rail logo and the British Rail time typeface. Yeah, it's going to be very, very explicit to customers that this is a nationalised system and it feels like a nationalised system. And yeah, there's pros and cons, and we'll probably come on to both of those. Um, but at least we don't have this situation where ministers are pointing fingers at train companies saying it's all their responsibility, as happened in the sort of post-GTR 2018 timetable debacle, which was between a, 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 a franchise which the government took all the revenue risk and made all the decisions and a state-owned infrastructure provider and yet the government was able to sort of say it's all it's all their fault over there we're not in that world anymore at least it's clear where accountability sits yeah can't disagree with that at all but we should look at some of the positives as well apart from just that sort of positioning thing of responsibility i, I think that the single most important feature of the whole white paper is the acceptance of the need to take stuff out of uh, the Department for Transport and, and create a, an agency that sits outside outside government. I'm not quite so keen on the name they've chosen, but the fact that it's not network rail, it's it's something that, uh, that sits on top of network rail. And then the, the sort of the, the doing parts of network rail are devolved into these five regions, which should get decision making closer, not close, but closer to the, the customer. All of that is is gets big ticks from me with a major caveat. <laughs> and the caveat is that this agency has got to be given enough space to operate in, enough what you might call license to operate, uh, so that it's not kept on a really short leash from the Treasury. And, and because what we're seeing at the moment is that the, the Treasury doesn't trust uh, the industry to run itself uh, cost effectively and therefore has withdrawn its license to operate and is making all of these decisions in minutiae uh, itself. Uh, well, that can't, that, it's a pretty dire position that we've got to, and that can't be allowed to continue. So the decision to outsource all of this to an agency is great, only so long as. Uh, they actually give it the space to manoeuvre. So it needs to be given a clear strategic framework, a funding envelope, and then it needs to be allowed to get on and make its own decisions. Now, I'm, I'm not at all clear how fast that transition uh, will can or will take place. I believe I'm right in saying it needs primary legislation to uh, enable concessions to be let uh, by the agency as opposed to by the department. So we're probably talking somewhere between one and two years for that to happen. But there is a precedent for this in, in the setting up of the Shadow Strategic Rail Authority. And it didn't really seem to get in the way of that organisation grabbing hold of power and getting on with stuff. So I, th I think there is space for this agency to get set up quickly and, and get cracking. But I do worry that if the Treasury doesn't loosen its grip and if the department doesn't also allow uh, Great British Railways to, to get on with stuff as independently as possible, we could find ourselves in even more of a treacle than we are now, because there's the yet another organisation uh, of the alphabet spaghetti in the mix. So I think uh, the, 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 the intent is good, 
but it's the how we get from here to there uh, to make it better. I've got a big question mark in my mind on. Absolutely. And the, I totally agree. Forming a dedicated organisation to run the railways makes total sense. And if you look at fares, for example, the world that we have been in recently is that the fares are effectively set by central government civil servants in Whitehall, which is utterly the wrong place for them. They're then administered by a body... RDG that's officially a trade body um, of a load of private companies but in practice runs some mission critical commercial infrastructure for the whole railway and then the fares are officially set by pricing managers sitting in train companies and it just makes no sense far better for there to be one organization that's empowered to set the overall strategy and implement it and is responsible for its own infrastructure and making it happen and can set its own priorities and run its own business cases so that that makes absolute total sense um but like, like you, to think my... there's nothing to stop all of that happening really quickly. It, it, and there's I, no really complex ar architectural changes required to enable that to happen. I guess probably the biggest thing, if they're going for uh, uh, contactless, you know, tap in, tap out type stuff, there is quite a lot of architecture required to be put in at stations to enable that. But I think the sort of back office stuff, the technology is there to enable it very quickly. And the rest is just putting front end systems and, and marketing in place uh, to enable it to happen. So if the will is there, this could all be done in a year. And as you say, it's all about how this organisation set up. I mean, if you look back at, do you remember back in around 2000 when Transport for London was set up? And it, it was there was this weird period when TFL as a completely new greenfield organization was set up um, while London Transport still existed and London Transport was still running the tube and there were two websites one called TFL and one called London Transport um, both of you which used the same logo and they were they were hurling press releases at each other rather abusively because TFL was controlled by the mayor and Transport, London Transport was controlled by the government um, and it was it was kind of surreal but actually if that that model almost feels right for this situation you need gbr needs to be set up as an organization in its own right that feels independent that feels like it's got its own culture and that's going to be much harder because it's being set up by the people who run the current system but if it if it if it kind of creeps into existence without ever really knowing that it's coming into existence all that will happen is it will absorb the culture of its parent organizations which is you know dft and network rail and it won't have the the independence of spirit and the commercial mindset that it needs if it's going to take on the you know, the enormous job of of yes. running and setting the agenda for you know, one so of you're, the most you're powerful right. railway networks in the world Pop populating the key leadership roles in this uh, embryonic organization is all important and it needs a mix uh, a, a strong mix of, of expert people who are you know at the top of their game in the current industry uh, plus some people brought in from outside who will bring fresh culture uh, entrepreneurialism and, and a, a real push to innovate much faster to make stuff happen so you need that blend uh, in that to Great British Railways uh, organisation uh, in order to make a success of it. And, and you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens to the likes of people like Pete Wilkinson. Uh, you know, how, is he going to consider his job is done and it's time for him to go off and do something else? Or, or will he be happy to move across from the DFT into this organisation to provide a degree of, uh, uh, you know, continuity about how to, how to do the, the, the concession letting stuff? Because frankly, there is a lot of know-how there uh in in the department which you need to make sure you don't throw as the saying you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater 
absolutely and it's all it's it's going to be it's going to be about culture in that organization uh, and it, it just it, yeah the, the, and the, one of the things i really liked about the white paper is it, it identified the risks that were inherent in the approach it's taken because every approach has risks nothing is there is no perfect answer to these problems and one of the explicit risks it identified was that the new organization carries with it the culture of network rail and this isn't a criticism of network rails culture network rails culture has produced the safest railway in europe which is an extraordinary achievement and one that absolutely the network rail bits of the new organization must hold on to you know that that must not go anywhere but the culture that produces the safest railway in europe isn't necessarily going to be the same culture that's coming up with new commercially focused innovations for customers to attract new new patronage onto the railway and so you know the 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 commercial bit the 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 the, the caring about customers bit of gbr which needs to be the leadership bit of gbr because that's ultimately what it's for um, needs to have a totally distinct culture from the network rail bit, which is after all going to be probably about four-fifths of the workforce. Yeah, and whilst it's undoubtedly the safest railway in Europe now, it's probably also the most expensive and the, the poorest value for money, I'm guessing. I've yeah. got no figures to back that up. And and the most uh, risk-averse. Uh, Certainly so- the, the, the figures back it up. I've seen, I have seen them. Um, there was a, an, an EU report published um, a few years ago when we were still part of that whole shebang, um, which confirmed that you know, on pretty much every measure doing similar tasks cost more in the UK. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons why that methodology could be challenged, but they'd, they'd done their best and they'd certainly found evidence that the British railway was 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 expensive, which yeah, we, we've all experienced and seems, seems intuitive. A part of me thought that it would be better to either just go the whole hog and have an entirely nationalised system. You know, the, the infrastructure has already been brought in-house, bring the operations of the trains in-house as well, and you've then just got the ability to have an effectively a command and control structure or alternatively have a central team at GBR that make the specification decisions and then outsource the delivery of all of the various elements that achieve that. But I, I was slightly worried about this rather lopsided organisation where infrastructure is in the tent, but the trains are outside it. And does that create new interface risks and new incentive risks? I'm going to come back to bite this in a few years time. I don't see it creating a new interface risk because those are there already. Um, it is, I think you're right, it's lopsided. Uh, you know, a long time ago, I advanced a sort of model which, which had this agency in the centre of it, but had uh, the flexibility for infrastructure to be managed either within or, with, or outside it uh, and gave scope for, you know, vertical integration in geographic pockets where that was felt to be a potential uh, idea worth exploring. The obvious places to, to try that, would be, you know, places like Mersey Rail and, and uh, London Tilbury and South End and so on, those kind of pieces of railway that are relatively self-contained. So uh, I would have preferred to have seen more uh, sort of, clarity of, of intent uh, around making the best use of the public and the private sector as appropriate and giving GBR the flexibility to, to, to do so. But there's no mention of that. It is, as you say, it's all very much what the status quo prevails in terms of infrastructure, which I think is probably a missed opportunity, but, but maybe given the scale of other stuff that's needed just now, it's not at the top of the, the, the priority list for, for change. It is something that actually works just now. I mean, the, the interface risk that worried me was actually the interface risk between revenue and cost, which effectively is a new interface in the, compared to both British Rail and the privatisation model that was intended, obviously not where we are now. But in the sense that 
let's imagine you are at GBR and you have got some new commercial innovation you want to try. Um, uh, you, you're now in the position where the trains are run by an entity that takes no revenue risk and is therefore incentivized to deliver cost metrics and performance metrics. And you've got this new idea that might or might not work, but it, it requires something to be done differently. That organization that runs the trains isn't going to be incentivized to want to try this new thing. And so you, you know, you, what do you do? Do you wait for the end of a five-year franchise term or concession term and then, and then try and implement it through that? Do you try and persuade them to do it, but then they're going to want to be held harmless for any performance risk of this new innovation of yours, whatever it is, and they probably will because everything brings some kind of performance risk. And whereas you know, in British Rail, you know, if, if there was a new idea, it could be tried on a vertically integrated you know, railway and indeed at privatization within a franchise, it could be tried. Whereas now the cost and revenue lines only really meet at the very top. And that, that makes me a bit nervous about how new innovation and new ideas are going to be tested and tried and developed. Well, I get the point and I do, I, I absolutely see the risk. Um, uh, but uh, if they are serious about what they're saying, which is these five regional organisations are going to be given PL responsibility for, for the whole railway within their defined patches. And they, as I understand it, the intention is to devolve that PL uh, down to uh, you know route or even line of route basis. So I mean, I've seen pieces of work being done, for example, on the the, the, the Cambrian coastline or Cumbrian coast, I can't remember which one it was now. Uh, one, <laughs> one of the two. Uh, of trying to produce a whole PL for that for that railway line uh, to see how much they can shift it around by making some subtle changes that wouldn't have been thought of in, in the sort of segregated world that we lived in up until now. So I think uh, I, I don't share the same apocalyptic view that we're not costs and revenue aren't going to come together until it reaches the person at the very top which would be a disaster if that was to happen. So I'd like to think that we're going to end up with these sort of five regional gurus, or rubber barons would be another expression for them, I suppose, uh, who are going to have profit and loss responsibility for, for their railway and are going to make sure they're structured so they can uh, you know, do the very best they can within the, the resources available. And that works from an infrastructure perspective, but how do you, in, how do you make sure that the private operator whose job it is simply to deliver performance targets is incentivized to try new things as well if there's not because, their own idea because they, they they i'm hoping i don't know the detail the details missing but i'm hoping these five regional organizations are going to be designing letting and managing these concessions and so they can either have breakpoints in them or they can have variation mechanisms in them uh, or, or other forms of incentive devised into them to encourage the operators to, 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 to step up to the plate when you want to try and do something different. Mm. Otherwise, yes, you're right. We'll be stuck with the same weaknesses we've had for the last uh, 25 odd years. And that really does come back to this point that it's about the credibility of the new organisation and the leadership of the new organisation and the ability of the new organization to craft those intelligent contracts that solve some of the problems that we've seen in the past. And, you know, I, I don't know Andrew Haynes. Every single person I've spoken to has been extremely positive that Andrew Haynes is the right person to be taking on the task of establishing a new organization. If anything, therefore, gives grounds for optimism, it's the fact that you've got the right person on the job when it's such a mission-critical task. Yes, not only that, but I think he's got Peter Hendy with him, 
who's able to provide some political air cover, um, you know, which obviously this organisation is going to need in its early years whilst it gets itself established. So I think the pair of them make a formidable team, uh, but they're going to need a lot of help from some people who are not in network rail at the moment. Um, and, and some, you know, they need the brightest minds. They need to take some people from out of RDG. They need to take some people out of the DFT, uh, but they need fresh minds as well who come from outside the rail industry uh, to bring, uh, you know, the culture change that you alluded to as being absolutely essential within Network Rail. We need to make sure this is not a bigger version of Network Rail that's being created. It's got to look and feel and behave differently. I think that is, it's a big opportunity, but it's also, you know, a huge risk because that's quite a and challenge you, for anybody. And as you say, the political air cover at the moment uh, is you know, potentially greater than at any time I can think of. Peter Hendy's worked with Boris Johnson for over a decade and is totally trusted. Boris Johnson is one of the few prime ministers we've ever had who seems to take transport seriously as a topic and to care about it personally, presumably because of his experience as mayor of London, which is virtually a single issue job. And so you feel like there's a reasonable chance that you know, this new leadership of this new organisation new organization will be given the time and the space to create something good before being, you know, the, the, there's another there's another reshuffle, priorities change, everyone moves on again, everyone forgets about this, um, and there's a new priority. You feel like that that the risks of that are less now than probably at any time I can think of, probably since the times of Andrew Adonis. Yeah, so long as uh, Peter Hendy is there, and so long as Boris is still in that role, I think you're right. The air cover is is retained, but you can see that in the last few months, you know, it's been it's been important that that Boris has been behind the scenes uh, manipulating the battleground between the DFT and the Treasury. Uh, in favour of in favour of rail, uh, and you saw that with with HS two um, as well in public. So uh, to to that extent, Boris's survival in number ten is is quite important to the railway just now, and it's looking more assured than it did a few weeks ago. And I think the when I, when I talked earlier about twenty thirty and sort of what what happens in twenty thirty, I think one of the things there's nothing nothing anyone can do about this. I don't I've not I don't think this is the the white paper is not very good. Um, I don't think it's the white paper's fault. I don't think yeah you know, I think the white paper is as good as it could possibly be in the circumstances. But the white paper wants to emulate the success of the London Overground, uh, and and replicate a lot a lot of the model of the London Overground concession. And the accountability they describe is that the minister will be accountable, the GBR will be accountable to the minister in the same way as London Overground is to the mayor, and they describe that explicitly. But of course, it's just different because the mayor of London is a single issue politician elected purely on transport matters, in effect, and who sits as chair of the TfL board with his voters being pretty much exactly the customer base of TfL. So as a, a, a political accountability mechanism, it's as, it's as good as textbook. Um, and better than the vast majority of textbooks could imagine actually occurring in a, in a real life political environment. Whereas this is going to be in the real world. Um, and the Secretary of State is not a single issue. Um, the, the government is not elected on a single issue manifesto. No one votes on the basis of transport. The Secretary of State will typically last about 18 months. And all they really care about is the next reshuffle. And the idea, therefore, that you can use the Secretary of State as a mechanism for giving long term political accountability um, 
in reality, once you've got beyond where we are now with Grant Shapps, Boris Johnson, Peter Hendy, feels much less likely that, that will still be true in 2030. But I, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I've got not any bright ideas of how to solve that or what they could have done differently. It's just going well, to be different and it's not going to work as I, well as London. I think everything you say is is, is absolutely true and, and I wouldn't, wouldn't argue with any of it. I, I suppose the, the, the thing you have to hope for is that the, the government doesn't actually row back comprehensively on devolution. Uh, sadly, it appears to be doing just that at the moment seems to be emasculating transport for the north uh, just now it seems to be setting out a, 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 its table to have a, a, a battle royal with transport scotland and, and scottish government and probably something similar in due course with uh, the, the welsh government uh, what's going to happen in the west midlands and on merseyside uh, and in the northeast we can only speculate on but uh, you know i, I think it's it's sad uh, that this government appears to be taking a centralising tack uh, as opposed to a devolutionist uh, tack at the, at the wrong time in history. Uh, I would write, I mean, TfL is a good example of how it's been a successful model when it's been allowed to get on with it and given a, a stable funding environment. And that's been wrecked in the last year. And we've seen the government take back control in a really pain, a crucially painful way. Uh, and I, I do worry uh that we're going we're going to see the same thing happen in in the the, the overground rail network nationally at the, at the very time when you want to be getting decisions made as close to the user and the customer as possible uh, we're in danger of of centralizing this stuff and that's why i think it's really important that these regional uh, organizations are made uh, very powerful but also uh customer focused you know they've got to be led by the customer and this is sadly where the, the charts in the white paper are a bit sad because they don't even refer to the the, the passengers at all it's all about organizations absolutely and yeah i it does have a slightly sort of centralizing tone to it the white paper you know i, I sort of chuckled at the fact that it uh, it decides that yeah the railway will use the the, the double arrow logo and the um, new rail alphabet across the board um, and models itself on the success of the London Overground because you know, where I live in Walthamstow, um, we have two local stations, Walthamstow Central and Walthamstow Queen's Road. And you know, when I moved to Walthamstow, both of those had the double arrow and the new rail alphabet. Um, and now neither of them do. They have the TfL Randall and New Johnston because they've been taken over by a devolved body. And actually, that has been part of the reason for the success that the white paper is seeking to emulate. But you have to ask, reading the white paper, will you see more of that? Are there are there more locations where the the, the national rail network and in, in in its new incarnation GBR will take itself out of the equation and say, no, we're not the right people to be making decisions about this bit of the railway. This this bit of the railway should be run by Cornwall County Council. Or this bit of the railway should be run by whomsoever. You you don't get that sense coming through the white paper that that's what they're trying to do. No, it's it's just uh, it's silence on it, and, and and as you go through the white paper, I think it gets weaker the further it goes. You know, section six and uh, seven and eight, or especially eight, are a bit weak, a bit thin on content, and, and and rather weak about how all this stuff's going to happen. I mean, there's a great commitment to um, electrification, uh, sort of enabling uh, you know the railways green credentials to be retained. Otherwise, without that, they will they will wither on the vine as uh, road, the main competitor, becomes ever greener year by year. So that's that's pretty welcome. Um, but otherwise, the sort of 
but a lot of the stuff was motherhood and apple pie uh, rather than really any any flesh on how all of these things are going to happen yeah and you know, in one sense that's okay i mean i remember i had a i had a fascinating conversation with um jenny williams and i don't know if you ever met jenny williams but she's a fascinating person to talk to because she was the she was the person she was a, a, a civil servant who was given the task of running the, the privatization of the railways back in the 1990s and she taught i, I talked to her in detail how they made the decisions as to what was going to be done and what all, all the organization's roles were going to be and how it was all going to be incentivized and when you said earlier that it feels like there's been less thought done given to, to this in the 1990s i certainly you know, talking to, 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 to her, got the sense that an immense amount of thought had gone into it. The problem is, of course, that an awful lot of it turned out to be wrong. People didn't behave in the way that a very detailed, well-thought-through piece of um, planning had, had decided that they were going to behave. They, they turned out that they, they were incentivized differently in the real world to the very detailed set of models. And in one sense, if we can get to a place where this new organization set up and it has the right leadership and it has the right culture, giving it the space to find its own way into the future um, without it all being prescribed by, by, by central government civil servants writing a white paper, doesn't feel a bad bad outcome if, if, if yeah. that is where we can get to. Yeah, no, I can't disagree with that at all. So overall, um, I, was, I was optimistic on Thursday, tempered a bit by pessimism on Friday. I mean, overall, I think I, my, my sense is it really could go either way. And we, on, you could end up with a world in which a, a weakened organisation under the control of the Treasury, um, really unable to make many decisions, or we could have one of the you know, the absolute powerhouses of, of European railways, you know, innovating, thinking, thinking forward with a great culture and all the resources under its at its disposal to make things happen. And they both seem totally plausible um, futures for, for, for this, for this organisation, therefore and, the railway. And, and, and surely the, the answer will be will be somewhere in the middle. I think the most important thing about this white paper is that it means that at last we have a way forward, a proposed way forward. So we can end the, the sort of stasis that we've experienced for at least three years now, since it was obvious that the franchising model was broken. Uh, and, and there's a lot of commitment to really good stuff in the white paper that, frankly, should be celebrated after the last few years experience. So, uh, you know, the, the national rollout of pay as you go, for example, uh, the move to entirely digital ticketing, uh, use of smartphones as the basis uh, for, for ticket media for the, the future, uh, the national uh, sales website and, and apps, uh, integration with buses using the national rail website as a portal for, for that. Uh, customer service coming out from behind the ticket window, simplification affairs, the protection of turn up and go for the future. Uh, all of this stuff is fantastic. Uh, and to see it written down in paper as a commitment, I think is, uh, I, I was deeply impressed. And probably the most important of all is a commitment to do away with ironing board seats. <laughs> Absolutely. And the fact they're going to be measured by things like passenger satisfaction um, is, you know, sh should provide guarantees or, you know, indications that hopefully as those things are replaced in the future by whatever the new set of innovations are we'll be grabbing those innovations because you need to do that to maintain passenger satisfaction so i think uh, if you were giving it stars <laughs> points out of 10 or whatever and you really have to recognize that these things 
Uh, I'm sure when the first draft of this was written, it was quite different and, and probably more radical. And it's been tempered as it's gone through the government machine into something that's politically uh, expedient. Um, but it's still retained, um, you know, a sense of purpose and, and direction. Yeah, it's not clear where the end uh, game is. Um, but I, th I think given where we are, uh, you know, I'd have to give it, you know, four stars out of five, I think. Definitely four stars out of five and genuinely one of the best government white papers I have ever read. And that's yes. absolutely true. Yes, I said that on Twitter. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this special edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much indeed to my guest, Michael Holden. And thank you to you for listening. If you want more on the Williams Review, we're going to be talking to Diane Crowther, the chief exec of HS1 in two weeks. And we'll be talking about many of the same questions about the future of the railways and the success of the Williams Review then. This week, we're doing something completely different. We'll be talking to Alex Edmonds, the professor of finance at London Business School, about corporate purpose and its application to transport. So I hope you join me for those. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week and I will see you on Thursday. Goodbye. Goodbye.